Hello, everyone, and welcome to Mental Health Much. My name is Vincent, and I'm a French-Canadian psychotherapist living in Toronto. As a therapist, I'm fascinated by anything that has to do with mental health. So on this podcast, I invite friends and colleagues over to talk about it. Being a gay man, I'm obviously more interested in anything queer-related, as well as topics that are pro-feminist, pro-trans, and anti-racist. This week, I'm meeting with my friend Danielle to discuss the topic of passionate burnout. Hi, Danielle. Hello. How are you, Vincent? I'm good. Thank you for coming. It's my pleasure. This is going to be interesting. So, Daniel, we've been friends for a few years now, and you're actually one of the people that really supported me when I first got this crazy idea of starting a podcast. So I'm really, really happy to have you on this podcast. Well, thank you. I think it's a great idea. And so I am looking forward to getting into it. For our listeners who don't know you, tell us in a few words or a few sentences, who are you? Well, um, my name is Daniel. I am a 41-year-old cis male identifying settler um, origin from uh, living here in Canada. And I live here in Toronto and I am married to my husband of 22 and a bit years. I have a nine-year-old son that we are obviously parents of. We also live with my father-in-law who has his separate unit in the basement. So it's a full and loud house. Um, yeah, I am a kind of a queer uh, arts professional. So I went to school for film and I now um, have my own consulting profession, but come from the nonprofit charitable organization background working in the film festival uh, screen industry sector. That's going to be really important later when uh, we talk about why you chose this topic. But tell us a little bit more. Uh, what is your relationship with mental health? My relationship with mental health is ongoing. The last six years or so, I would say that my understanding that I needed support for my mental health came into focus um, over the course of my um life experiences. And so I have dealt with it in different ways and think I've figured out the toolkit that I need to move forward at this point. Tell us a little bit more because all my guests, uh, when I ask them to come, they're really excited. And then they're saying like, oh my God, I need to pick only one topic around the whole world of mental health. So what made you choose this topic, uh, burning out? And I know in your case, it's burning out while you're actually doing something you're passionate about. So what made you decide to pick this topic? What interests you in this topic? The reason why I chose to kind of look at mental health and burnout is because that is what happened to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> when I started feeling unwell and had no idea what was going on. It took some work for me to understand what predominant factors that were affecting my mental health. So um, it was very much related to my uh, profession that at a certain point was clashing between my drive and my passion and my capacity to do that. That really put me down into um, various periods of spirals of feeling quite um, overwhelmed and then it leading to more kind of serious functionality issues. So, yeah. 
Thank you. That sounds really interesting. So let's take a small break. And after that, we'll dive right into the real conversation. Welcome back. We're here to talk about burnout and managing your passion to avoid burnout. I guess, first of all, and you disclosed a little bit uh, before the break, Danielle, but would it make sense for you to start with telling us a little bit of your history of your burnout? Yeah, I, so, I mean, just a bit about me as a personality, you know, I am one of those people that, um, I mean, is, for lack of a better word, kind of an overachiever, um, which is a double-edged sword. Um, Mm -hmm. So I grew up very much in a world of like, you know, a very, a great house, a loving family, you know, firstborn. So I, you know, a lot of attention was kind of put on me, a lot of like... All of the attention, all of it. Yeah, the attention, uh, what came with it was kind of expectation. You know, I think a lot of firstborns kind of are rule followers in a way because they are told a lot like, oh, do this, don't do this. And your parents are more hyper um, sensitive to that as their first child. They want to do everything right. They're actually, yeah, they're actually there. I'm the third born and my parents were lovely, but parents don't care as much when it comes to the third child. (laughs) Yeah. And it's not that they don't care. It's that they know not to, um, the small stuff. They realize what were things that they had done overtly and did they need to do that again? And yes, um, but, you know, through that experience, I kind of grew up being a go-getter, getting gratitude from like doing a good job on things, getting praise. Mm-hmm. So it's that definitely translated throughout my whole life, like in terms of everything, like I, you know, through all of that, that then went into my schooling, I went to Ryerson for film studies. And I was in a group that was also very driven as well. Our year was just that way. So we were all wanting to make our own films, but also wanting to support others. So I ended up like kind of working on like three times as many things as I needed to. So suddenly it was like halfway through my last year and I hadn't done, done anything for myself. And I was like, wow, I really need to catch up. I work hard. So I managed to overcome that and get it done and everything was great. Oh, so if you work hard, then everything is just magic, right? Yeah. As long as you keep like putting, going to the grindstone and keep at it, you know, there's no limit or yeah. so I thought. So this continued until, you know, I went into the film industry. I rose through different, you know, working at a post-production company, then through the film festival circuit. As that happened, I kept taking on, you know, doing more things. They went well. Then there were new opportunities. I'm kind of a glutton for opportunity and I get excited about it. And that was fine. As a younger person, you know, in my 30s, late 20s, early 30s, I could do anything. Right. Because you said about six years ago was when it started being harder. That's right. So, yeah. So obviously my life had changed quite a bit in terms of the responsibilities around me. And I still had, not even knowing it, not changed my own standards for myself and that I could still do 150%. That was always my mindset. I never had any concept that I couldn't do something. Like, I can do it. I'll be fine. I'm going to figure out this problem. I'm going to take this on and I'm going to figure out and I'm going to succeed. Well, there came a point where that started to not work and I didn't know what it was. 
when it happened, I just knew that something was wrong. Um, and how did that feel for you? You know, I look back at it and I think it was just an anxiety that I didn't had never experienced before. It was that pit and gut in your stomach. I had a, a point where we had just completed the 15th anniversary of the festival that I was at. And everyone knows in a nonprofit or festival that you kind of like go full on for months. There's a certain point about three months out, you work crazy hours just to get it done. We call it like zombie, like you're a festival zombie. And we even say like, oh, are, who's your festival widow? Mm -hmm. It's so common when people like give themselves, like give so much energy on something or uh, they're really anxious about something and the things settle and they feel like finally they're going to get better. And obviously they get super sick the week after. Yes. And so normally, you know, we have downtime after the festival. We only have to work one day. Mm -hmm. Well, in this particular year, something was said yes to that was happening in half the time, less than half the time, months away from where we currently were after this festival. So, um, and there was just this tone of like, well, we have to do it. It's an opportunity. This is how we're going to be better. But when I heard this, just, we have to do it. I knew I wasn't ready. I had this pit in my stomach that just said, I don't want to do it. But my psychology of wanting to please people and wanting to, you know, kind of save the day, um, I did it. It kind of brought in a stress at home. My partner had felt like he hadn't even got me back yet from the festival because you're just a zombie and I just never stopped. My dog got sick. Like my dog got really bad diabetes to the point where we had to put her down. And I just at that point, I knew something was wrong. I just had this like weird feeling. I didn't know what it was. And I, I actually walked into in my building. It's a, it was, it's a beautiful building at work that has all these different like arts organizations. And one of them actually had a, like a therapy group and it was two registered nurses who had their own therapy group. And I literally just went and knocked on the door and said, hi, you know, I'm Daniel. I work down the hallway. And I just said, I think I need to have a meeting with you. Like, I just don't know what's wrong. One thing that's interesting is that in hindsight, now that we look back, it's like, and you're telling me all of this, it's so obvious, probably to you too, what was happening. But when what I'm hearing is that when you're in the middle of it, you're actually not realizing because that's just the way you've been your entire life. Yeah. And it's always been one of those, I, I don't want to sound vain or something, but I've never, I've always su like succeeded in what I had done, I never had something that didn't work out. So to me, this was kind of like a situation where it was like, I've never failed at something before. Something was wrong with my brain and it was affecting who I was and I didn't even know where to start. And that was really scary for me. Yeah. So on top of having to deal with the burnout and all the pain, like a physical, even and emotional, you also for the first time had to feel what it feels like to fail at something and to not succeed at something. Yeah. Or my perception of what I perceived failure to be. I was stressed out about like my parents' 40th, 5th anniversary and trying to do something big and exciting for it. Like I wanted to project things on like in their backyard and like have this amazing, I was putting these expectations. Right. In the middle of a burnout, still full on, I'm doing everything at 110%. Like I, I just didn't know that it was, that my body was telling myself to stop, but I didn't know to stop. I didn't know that's what it was. Uh, um, I went through 
not doing a big thing for my parents' 45th, you know, we did a littler thing and I asked for help. I asked my sister to do like a DVD of, of pictures and we just did a dinner instead of inviting everyone over. And then it was done and it was like, that wasn't so bad. And then let's say two years ago, things just kept getting bigger. I kept doing more. I just kept taking on more. I still hadn't learned my lesson. Was it because you didn't know how to stop or is it because you did not understand that this is what your body was saying? <sighs> it, it was a bit of both. I definitely had a period when I had gone through it the first time that like, oh, I figured it out. I figured it out. It's done. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a big trope in mental health to have this like haha moment, either in therapy or with yourself and thinking, great, now I understand this about myself. I will never have a problem ever again. And this is really not how it works. I've always been like, how do I get back to how I was? The fact is what I was wasn't working anymore. And my body and brain were telling me that. But I, I'm one of those people that like always want to think silver lining. I always want to think, I'll bounce back. I'll do this. This was literally years of kind of learning maybe a little piece about the picture, but not truly believing that I was someone living with depression and mental illness. But I got to the point where I slowly stopped coming into work and was like, I'll be better tomorrow. If I just get on this, I'll do this. It was, I was stuck between I have to do it and I can't do it. It's such a dangerous message that we have all the time. Like if you put your mind into something, you can achieve anything you want. And in a way it's true. Uh, motivation and drive is important, but it's such a damaging message. Yes. I remember I just cried saying, I'm sorry. I was just saying sorry out loud to all of my coworkers for letting them down. And it was just like, I just let everything out. Um, that was when I was in my worst and that just kicked me down. Suddenly all you did in all those years before was no longer important. Yeah. Let's shift gear a little bit and um, talk about being queer, being gay and being an overachiever. There's a lot about it as a psychotherapist when I work with queer people and, and especially with gay men. Yeah. I see it like not obviously not every gay person is the same, but it is a common trait that I see. And obviously the very uh, famous book, uh, The Velvet Rage, has been written about that. Whether you, you like this book or not, you know, it's it's the main topic. So what is your take on being queer and being an overachiever? Oh, interesting. I have to read that book, first of all. So plug that at the end. Um, <laughs> I like ooh, uh, The Velvet Rage. Sounds like a club. I'm always so surprised when when uh, gay men have not heard of The Velvet Rage. It's kind of like the first book. Well, I don't know if it's the first, but it's like the most famous one, I guess, book written on uh, on gay men and mental health. And people either love it or hate it. And there is like no nuances in between those two emotions with this book. <laughs> um, so being queer and being an overachiever, um, I've talked a bit about this actually with some family members i i think um we have in general a wanting to be liked and wanting to be mm -hmm. to be loved because we are surrounded in our lives with imagery and with opinions that that it is not accepted by everyone that it's not accepted by a vast majority of people and that comes out in different ways that makes you feel you've been born into something that wasn't 
something anybody would choose. Growing up, I had that happened to me. I've I I felt on the verge of getting having violence happen against me. Definitely verbal violence. I lived in fear a lot of my growing up of of people yeah. going to beat me up because of that. People hanging out on the back steps of the high school who I knew didn't like me. I would avoid certain exits and entrances. I had someone who lived on my street who despised me so much. And I would avoid any way to walk home so that way his red Honda tinted window base beating car of the 90s. Such a specific memory, yeah. Because I have an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, obviously. I could hear that bass and knew it was him coming up behind me. So, I mean, all of this stuff makes you feel inadequate. So you overcompensate when you're good at something. You want to be so good at it that everyone loves you because of it. Yeah, because there's such a switch in dynamic when when people, and maybe that's something that not all straight people understand, but how almost every queer people I've met have these stories of fear, of feeling unsafe. And we just often casually talk about it without realizing how much stress and, and trauma there is. Yeah, And then there's a dynamic shift when arriving to work where now when I work and I'm really good at my job, because let's be real, in school, having good grades does not put you on top of the <laughs> of the hierarchy, right? <laughs> but at work, being great at work, uh, that does sort of like give you an edge and can make you go higher. So being a perfectionist is really something that a lot of queer people, gay men that I know, have in their pocket as a tool that has remarkably enhanced their quality of life. But when yes. it's time for that perfectionist to go to bed for a minute, right? Because I don't have the energy to do my parents' uh, 45th um, yeah. birthday. And maybe just the dinner is okay. And like, what's important is that I my parents know that I love them. Yeah. But that perfectionist is like, uh, hell no, this is not how we do things. So that <laughs> little voice inside our head that has sort of like saved our life in a way now it's like out of control and it yeah. needs to yeah sometimes it needs to go to bed just a little while it, it 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 does and and um that's been my again that it's been my latest mental health experiences and it it does touch on that perfectionism and you know as i as i transitioned out of that job um at a festival and then started my own stuff and then the pandemic hit and then realizing like things aren't working out as i planned um so as this overachieving gay man uh doing really great at your job being known as the happy go lucky person being successful in your relationship with your family and then ended up like having to admit that you had this depression that you burned out how did it bruise your ego was this a thing did you have to also on top of having to slow down and um learn to rest did you also have to take care of your of your ego and and how how is that work for you so yes in terms of like ego i mean ego i don't know much about psychology and i wouldn't say my ego means like i think i'm the shit but it was also like you don't need to take on you don't need to be the be all end all for other people. You don't have to think that you are, um, you know, you're really good at 
everything and you need to take it all on that fulfills some like sick thing where you get a satisfaction out of being the one who's successful like it does you get that praise you get you like i'm going to take all of this on and i can just even imagine how even bigger the praise is going to be again it's something that's like hurts you in the end when you can't actually um you have to let go of that control that perfection something i've learned very recently or like i have been learning but kind of came out as a tool very recently in my therapy work um was this kind of something called like save the day syndrome and or like a save the day moment or mode that you get in and once i heard like when we went down this path i knew uh, this is a key component of my psychology the save the day syndrome is this you know you can take it on you can do it you can make it great you you take on someone else's problem and make it your own I can help you. I'm going to give you all my time and energy. I may not even get paid for half of it, but I don't care because I want to get praise. I want to get acknowledgement. I just need one person to say good job and I'm good for the year. Right. Someone's going to offer or needs help. Doesn't mean you do it all. That's not giving them any tools to, to figure things out. That just helps. Um, you're an enabler of their passing things off to you. They're always going to take it. Um, and so, you know, I've kind of learned to like, examine the motives and the cost to me personally when these save the day moments come up in the future we've all been there where you take on something you think it's great and once you're a month into it and it's a year-long project you're like what did i get myself into i did not mindfully decide that that this was actually a good project for the right reasons then you're trapped in it you just have to work through it and for me i said yes to too many things not thinking that through and it took a toll on my my mental health my physical health my psychological health and did you became one of these people who then needed to be perfect at therapy <laughs> because that's a thing right when people have this like perfectionist voice it does not go away when people start therapy it is very much there i feel it sometimes with some people that i work with and they're like why can I not figure out this therapy things? I'm normally really good at, at like all the tasks that I give myself. <laughs> and if I'm going to do, if I'm going to do self-care, if I'm going to do self-love, I'm going to be the best at self-care and I'm going to be the best at self-love, which is literally the opposite of what self-care and self-love is. Yeah. Yes. Oh no. I, I would say, I would say no. I would like to say, I learned that because for me, I was at a pay. I, I was at such a low that I just had to give in. I just have to say that I, I can't do all of this on my own. I just had to turn off for me. I just had to hit a low of like staying in bed, not having energy. Like, I don't know why I wish I didn't, but I did. <laughs> um, so I had faith after learning a couple of times that it will come back again. But believing that you can be better um, is also its own hurdle. That's the thing. If you are listening to this and you want to do therapy or you are in therapy, remember that you actually don't have to be good at therapy. Mm. You just have to show up. Yes, showing up. I had my own period where I was like, I'm sorry, I'm not being a good enough like client for you. Like, I can't think of like what I'm supposed to work <laughs> on right now. 
<laughs> yeah, it's always a double. And obviously, like, this is something I talk with my colleagues, but a double-edged sword, which some some clients are like, give me homework. And I, like, I really need to have, like, tasks to do at home. And I, like, and, like maybe your task is to, like, not do anything for a week. Uh, or just yeah. like sit down quietly for like 10 seconds and they're like, no, give me something else. No, they, no, that's scary. But that's scary to people. Like, I think when you're kind of a perfectionist, you're always on the go. You don't know, you don't like to stop. People don't want to admit or don't want to face what they, they might be like if they actually, you know, gave themselves permission slow to, to slow down. Yeah. I have a book called like in, in in glory of slow down or the slow down movement and it's like i got that many years ago just like does everything have to be due yesterday like no it doesn't yeah <laughs> the world the world's not going to end because i didn't make that event for that festival the world's not going to end if i say no to something that i'm feeling that gut feeling of like this isn't an opportunity that really works for me i like it's not it's not the end of the world but you you psychologically build that up to be if the only thing less than perfection is total disaster <laughs> you know like yeah and it's so unfortunate that so many of these like books that are actually right about slowing down the titles are always so cheesy that it always makes me want to not pick it up or not <laughs> yeah here's a um, turtle yeah. learn to be like a turtle i'm like no <laughs> I don't, I don't. Trying to be in a group full of gay men and talk about self-care and self-love is, uh, <laughs> is always, there's always at least a few people rolling their eyes, um, <laughs> but it's important. It's important to talk about it and it's important to talk about why we're rolling our eyes at it. Absolutely. So let's take another quick break. And when we'll come back, we'll be able to talk a little bit about what help and give resources and tips for people who may experience this. Okay, so we've talked a lot about your journey and about burning out and about that perfectionist voice in our head. But I think it's time to talk a little bit about what helps if you see yourself in that scenario, if you recognize some of the things that we've said today, what are some of the tips or resources that maybe could help you um, with your life? Knowing that obviously in mental health, there's never a one size fits all. But maybe let's start with asking you, Danielle, what are some of the tips that helped you? Yes. Um, well, I would say that I've learned or, you know, it, it always seems to be talked about the toolkit. Like, do you have the tools? Mm -hmm. Love a good toolkit. But I've gone through periods where like, I think I have the tool. And then the next time I'm like, where the, where's that tool? Like, where is that thing? You know, I, I swear I learned it. I swear I wrote it down when they were talking to me. Um, but I can't, I can't find it right now. So <laughs> I think I've learned over the course of all of this. Number one for me is exercise. Um, that has mm -hmm. always been a thread through my whole like life. Um, but particularly through this is that exercise is so key to, um, a routine to put your body, your body through a mindfulness, get those, get those endorphins in your brain. Yeah. And like, it took, it took me listening to podcasts about neuroscientists talking about how the brain works and how movement affects it. Like I, I, I have the calm app and they have a series on there called spark. And one of the topics was about that. It is like 
proven through studies that exercise is a very practical thing that you can do. You know, I learned that and that is like definitely number one. I exercise every day and I have a little sticky note on my wall that says at least do 40 minutes of something. Even though people say 20, I'm 40 minutes. Yeah. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> I, I do 40, but it may not be all at the same time. I'd be a 20 minute, yeah. like power cycle. And then 20 minutes out with my son walking around the track or going to the park. So, you know, just doing that. I'm so excited right now into lockdown because I've been really good at my routine of doing like eight to like 12 minutes of stretches in the morning, but good for you with your 40 minutes. Who cares? If it's making you feel good. I'm not worried about it. <laughs> but exercise for, for sure. And some people aren't exercisers, but I'm like, it's proven movement affects your psychology. So like, and, and literally the, the chemicals that are getting released. I'd say a second thing, when I was feeling really low, I found that listening, uh, this sounds funny, but listening to podcasts about different things, whether it's mental illness or i particularly have a podcast called secular buddhism um noah Rash mm -hmm. noah Rashetta is the host of it and i've gone back to that at least two or three times when you just can't do anything else and you just want to sit and have someone talk to you in a, in a nice voice and they're talking about larger universal ways of being and the liquidity of experience and that things aren't like finite where something ends something is also beginning i found that super helpful noah rachetta's secular buddhism podcast i'll put a description like in the description i'll put the name that in the calm app that you mentioned and obviously the velvet rage book it's all going to be in the description yeah. of this podcast yeah. one other podcast i also enjoy her name's uh tara brock and she's a lot like wonderful too you want someone calm to go to sleep too I've been emotional just like listening to her things. It's like, she's just in the room with you. I would say the next thing is meditation. You know, I've never been a spiritual person up until I had mental health issues. Um, when I was looking and grasping for things, I tried yoga, I was trying whatever, but uh, meditation, just calming your brain down in a pattern, a repetitive routine pattern of doing that. I don't always do it every day, but you know, I always, you know, at least every other day, make sure I'm mindfully taking time. Even if it's, I'm on a walk, I'm walking, I will breathe and I will kind of zone out being mindful of my presence in the world. That's been super grounding for me. Even when you're lying in bed, just put on a, you know, the Calm app and listen to some rain and just breathe, just breathe. So I'm hearing a lot of things that help you is like stuff that help you um, turn down the noise and just be mindful in the present. Yes. And I would say that that was the most healing thing the most soothing thing other than, you know, a hug from my partner being allowed to just experience calmness. It was kind of the thing that made me feel more calm. And then suddenly it inspired me. Like it made me see like other people are going through this. I'm uh, like, I'm not alone. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. I'd say like gratitude. Um, I know everybody talks about gratitude when you're feeling starting to feel better maybe a bit and you're trying to be kind of more open to being inspired like those things talk to your soul and then be like you can do it you can believe in yourself again it's right. really wonderful because that's a slippery slope right with gratitude there's a lot of people who are like oh i'm not doing it right or it's not working and that's because their perfectionist voice is still so loud <laughs> yes. that 
it feels like they cannot even do gratitude right. I think I love that you say that this is something that you were able to do after, like once you've learned to rest and once you gave up on doing everything perfectly, then you were able to have gratitude. Yeah. And I have a little journal that again, I don't do it every day, but I'll sometimes mentally do it. And, you know, writing three things, three new things. I mean, all the the books about self-help say this, but it is actually helpful. <laughs> oh yeah. It's uh it's the exercise number one. <laughs> like have a little book and write three things you're grateful for at the end of each day. But there's a reason for it because it, it, it changes your negative your your cycles of negative self-talk into looking for the good in the world. And I think that's super important. Making that effort, I think, puts your, your brain just in a more positive space and that releases different types of chemicals. I'm going to tell you a big secret to you and to all of our listeners. I have never, ever wrote any. I have a book of gratitude that somebody gifted me years ago. And, you know, I didn't get rid of it. So I guess there's a part of my brain that is still thinking you still might use it. <laughs> it's still completely blank. But that's okay. Maybe you haven't had to get to a place where you need to find it. I only started doing that in the last like month and a half but it's again it's a new tool for me to to play with and maybe you just don't need to play with that tool yet again it's not a one size fits all but i love that i said that to so many people that they should try that and like yeah. <laughs> i've never just done so it. you know <laughs> i've never had that flavor of ice cream um <laughs> yeah i would say when you're feeling better not to stop using the tools. You still need these tools. You are built in from a young age to have a certain tendency to do things. And that will probably show itself again, if you don't keep it in check. So, you know, my last round, I had a thought a month before something's feeling a little off. And I just need to kind of like smooth iron out this wrinkle in my brain, but I didn't do it. I wasn't listening. Um, I also went off my me my medication, which probably wasn't that's my other thing don't go off your medication without a doctor <laughs> oh yes don't do that so therapy great she's wonderful so glad i'm gonna make sure i promise myself that i'm talking to her at least once a month even when i'm good just to like update her and work through you know is there something i need to work through never get rid of that that's a good tip though like therapy is not something you only need to do when you don't feel good. You don't only take care of your body when you're hurt. You take care of your body all the time. So therapy should not be this thing that only exists if you feel like you have a problem. It's yes. something that should be just part of health. It's actually preventative. It's like exercise. Mm -hmm. It's like medicine. And it's like, would you would you just stop taking medicine for your your psyche? Like, why would you do that? Why would you just stop? exercising i try to equate like exercise as important as taking a pill that's how i have to look at it so that way you i stick to it this is something that we know works don't resist it and there's not just one tool that's going to be the magic tool that cures everything it's going to be a series of small things that may not feel like it's do they're doing much at the moment you're doing them but in the long run they can they can definitely change someone's life yeah for sure I would say like the last thing on my list is like a support network, be able to talk about it with, with people. Like it's hard because not everybody has that, but you being open to someone about that, they might be open to you back and have some of the same things and you could be a resource to them as well. Yeah. Having to unlearn that taboo around, we're not, we should not talk about 
our flaws or weaknesses or mental health is. And this is the reason behind me starting this podcast. I'm like, I'm going to talk so much about mental health that people are going to feel comfortable talking about it. It's not mm-hmm. going to be taboo anymore. Yes. One thing that has really helped me uh, with my perfectionist voice and with burnout is learning to say no, but not just learning to say no, but learning to say no without giving a reason why I'm saying no <laughs> after. It was actually a really difficult learning. And and I have a mentor and a friend who is going to be a guest on this podcast who said no is a full sentence. And it took me a while to be able to just check in with myself and say, no, I can't do that. And I don't need to create a reason. And it could be something as small as going out with friends or going to a birthday party. And, you know, sometimes I'm like, ah, you know what, tonight, like, that's not where I'm at. And I'm not going to go. And people are people are okay. People understand if you communicate it nicely, people, people are fine. That is a huge thing. There are just so many people who don't know how to say no. And I don't, I say no and sorry way too much. I think it's endemic in like liberal Canadians minds or I don't know, at least it is very hard to say no because that fear of rejection. A small tip if you want to practice. And I actually (laughs) thought about this today when I went grocery shopping, you know, when you go grocery shopping, they ask you about a bazillion question. And I just learned to say no thanks after like, do you want a bag? No, thanks. Do you have this card? No, thanks. Do you have points? Do you want to give a donation? Do you want? And like, there's always these questions. I'm like, no, thank you. No, thanks. And (laughs) you know what? I don't feel bad about it anymore. And it, I used to, I used to feel bad saying no to like, do you have a points card? <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. I should get one. I know I'm losing points today. I'm losing 1400 <laughs> points. <laughs> I don't like point cards. I don't want a point card. So I just learned to say no. That's a big learning curve. And that's a huge Achilles heel. I think that's a lot of the problems that people get themselves into is the feeling that they can't say no for whatever reason. Okay. Well, we've talked a lot. Thank you so much for um, for coming on board and being so vulnerable and honest about a topic that still has so much stigma around. Um, Thank you. Danielle, do you have anything that, like, are you part of any projects right now? Do you want all of my millions of listeners to <laughs> uh, be able to find what you're doing? Um, I would say, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I'll tell you about the thing I'm very excited about. If you go onto Facebook or go on to um, that other thing, the web uh, and look up the, the internet, the, the inter the interweb on the worldwide. If you could um, type in the queer shopping network.com. That is the queer shopping network.com. Yes. That is my kind of new experiment to be promoting queer made products to not just the queer community but people who are supportive of the queer community so if i hear correctly it's about queer money going to queer folks yes and 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 also and being a place that has you know books about diverse families toys that are gender Mm -hmm. neutral they're not going to toys r us and it's pink or blue and i want my niece who lives in a small town and doesn't experience this stuff to also have these things in her place. I want to be able to be the gunkle that buys her something that's progressive and makes her think a bit different. And over the course of the years, hopefully these things will steep into not just the queer community who actively want it, but the non-queer community of supporters around them, whether it's through a kid's lens or through 
you know, a wedding present or whatever that you're, that there's a resource, a one-stop shop for your queer positive shopping needs is basically what it is. That sounds wonderful. (laughs) Well, thank you everyone for listening. Do not hesitate to give us a rating or comment and to subscribe to this podcast. Uh, If you want to stay in contact with me, follow the Mental Health Much Instagram account. And until the next episode, please keep talking about mental health to everyone as much as you can. And keep safe.